0: Hi, I'm Anne Arundel County State's Attorney Wes Adams. Welcome to Docket by the Bay, episode four, the Lothian Love Triangle. With me today are our two prosecutors and our lead detective, uh, Detective Kelly Harding from the Anne Arundel County Police. Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon. Head of my sting unit, Jason Knight. Welcome, Jason. Hello. And one of my most experienced violent crimes prosecutors, Amanda Mady, ahoy Amanda.
1: Ahoy, Wes.
0: So, I wanna talk a little bit about probably one of the most fantastic murders that has occurred in Anne Arundel County in recent history back in October of 2015. So Kelly, you were the detective that came to investigate this murder.
2: So I was one of um, several detectives that came and responded to the house. There had been a 911 call from Anna Anastasia that her husband committed suicide. So when uh, officers initially got there, Anne told them that her husband's friend was living with them and lived in the basement. She told officers originally that um, there had been some sort of argument between her husband and Jacqueline in the basement. And then her husband came upstairs to go to bed after the argument. She couldn't believe that her husband would commit suicide and that maybe... He did it because um, he was uh, upset about their argument that they had in the basement.
0: So did did Anne point you to the woman in the in the basement?
2: Eventually, not right away. Okay. Um, the way that I understood it from the officers, it was about ten minutes before she mentioned that there was somebody else in the basement. So the officers said, "Okay, well, if she had, if he, your husband, had an argument with her, we'll go." check what's going on with her to see what the argument was about. And the officers went downstairs and that's when they found her body.
0: So you're coming to a house and what appears to be a clean cut murder suicide is staring you in the face. Um, It's not how it turned out, was it?
2: No, not at all.
0: And did you get to the scene and see the body still on scene?
2: I did. I was there.
0: And and how did it look to you when you first got there?
2: Jacqueline was obviously a murderer. Someone had murdered her. She had multiple... Stab wounds and it was a bloody mess. Now, Mr. Anastasia was sleeping in their swinging bed and he was naked, but he was covered up. Okay. And there was a gun next to him, and there was also um, a bullet hole in his head.
0: At Detective Harding, have you ever seen a suicide before?
2: Too many, yes.
0: Yeah, and did did this at least at first glance kind of look like a suicide?
2: Maybe him at first. We're standing uh, around the bed and I simply said, okay, if I'm a killer, I'm going to walk in this way and this is where I'm going to shoot him and this is how I'm going to shoot him. And I walked to where I thought the casing might be and I found the casing. And it turned out that it was um, a three eighty casing.
0: Okay. What kind of gun was it next to Mr. Anastasi?
2: I believe it was a forty five.
0: So this wasn't really a suicide. There's no way he would have shot him, had a forty five next to his head if he... Shot himself with a 380 bullet. Right. As that starts to unravel, all of a sudden you've gone from a murder suicide to now what is potentially a double murder. What what happens? How do we eventually get to a place where we solve or develop a suspect in this case?
2: So we follow the evidence. Part of the evidence was Miss Anastasia agreed to um, a gunshot residue testing of her clothes, of her and her hands. And um, that came back that she had quite a few gun residue particles on her.
0: Jason, as as Detective Harding is in the process of
3: gathering this evidence, do you have an opportunity to review it? The Developing the suspect part, that was all the hard work of Detective Harding and the other detectives. I mean, that was, I think, a real testament to the hard work they put in on day one when they had Ann Anastasi in the interview room Having the foresight to give her the gunshot residue test, then get her to agree to go take a polygraph, that she failed. That information was brought back to the detectives upstairs, who then went back at her again, knowing that there was something that she had told them that wasn't true. So, Kelly, as,
0: as the as Anne Anastasia's story started to unravel, what direction did that did that lead you into?
2: So, um, there were inconsistencies in her story, and. Part of the evidence gathering, we um, received phone records from um, her cell phone, her children's cell phone, as well as both of the victim's cell phone. Once we um, received records, we learned a whole new slew of evidence.
0: Now, did we learn at at a certain point, did we ever learn the relationship between Miss Anastasi, Mr. Anastasi and a friend living in the basement
2: so we learned right away miss anastasia um she told us right away that they had actually all three been involved in a um, romantic relationship when they lived uh in michigan okay. and that the family um you know the children mr and mrs anastasia when they moved to maryland she thought that 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 part of their life was over she um was not interested in continuing any relationship with miss riggs she was very upset and probably hurt that Mr. Anastasia, I don't want to say demanded, but demanded that Jacqueline move in and move to Maryland and live with them.
0: So basically you had an Anastasia and her husband with her husband's lover living in the basement in their family.
2: That's correct. Okay.
0: So when you received all of this evidence from the cell phones, now we know we've got a love triangle, legitimate love triangle in the house. Anne's probably hurt by all accounts based on this and betrayed I mean, a lot of strong emotions. Does she automatically become your suspect?
2: No, not automatically. We talked to the family members and it seemed that uh, Mr. Anastasia wanted to start making babies and having another family with Miss Riggs. So there are other members of the family that would also you know, become upset or betrayed by um, their plan to start a whole other family. Uh, so she doesn't become our necessarily number one suspect. She's not eliminated, of course.
0: So as you're going through the evidence, how is it that we eventually start to uncover and develop the people who are responsible for this?
2: In the text messages, um, and, you know, through interviews, we learned that her 13-year-old daughter had a, uh, a boyfriend, a boyfriend that Mr. Anastasia did not care for. By the way, how
3: old was the boyfriend? 18. Not only were they investigating Ann, they were obviously looking at the 18-year-old. And along the way, they, Gabriel Struss, they got a warrant for Gabriel Struss, arrested him, brought him in, and got a complete confession from Mr. Struss outlining not only his role but the fact that he had essentially been manipulated or persuaded to carry out these crimes at the behest of Anne. So you've got now the killer, the, the trigger
0: man, and the I guess he was the stabber as well. Yes. Talking about how
3: it was his crime came to occur. Yes. One of the text messages that uh, Detective Harding and the other detectives located on Mr. Struss's phone was a conversation he had with his brother while he was waiting outside before he went into the home to actually commit the murders. And he made reference to, yeah, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to bust the dad and stab the girl. Do you know where he got the knife that he used
0: to to kill Jacqueline Riggs?
3: According to him, it's from Ann. He walked into the kitchen, and she was standing there
0: and handed it to him. Wow. I mean, it's a pretty stark grave act for an 18-year-old to commit. What in the background of Gabe did you see that would even lead you to believe that he could do that.
2: So it seemed that he didn't come from the best upbringing. He didn't have the best life. I think that he was looking for something that he never had and that was family and love. And I believe part of the manipulation is that um, they told him that with the father and his girlfriend gone, he could become more of a member of the family. They offered him a stable family home and a stable family life. I think, and if
3: I can just say, too, I think that's one of the areas where you could see Detective Harding's experience as a homicide detective as, and as an interviewer at play because that there's, a, I think, a common TV trope that detectives come into a room and are hanging on a table and demanding a, a confession. But I think she, from what I saw from watching your interview with him, you were able to quickly figure out that he was much more of a lost soul than he was a hardened criminal. And so she approached him in a soft way and not in a hard way. And I, and t- I think he just was waiting for that, for someone to actually take an interest and seem like you were wanted to hear what he had to say. Now, did did Miss Anastasia ever break down and admit I did it?
2: No, never.
3: Well, I think one of the best things I've seen in just police work uh, in general was the way that Detective Harding and her partner, they once they got to a point where there was a lot of evidence that pointed in Anne's direction, they didn't charge her. They brought her in the day before. If I remember, it was October 14th. They brought her back into the station and did a consensual interview with her. and. You know, spoke to her in this sense of, you know, they were not the detectives who did the initial interview with her on the fifth because they were still at the scene. So they brought her in and gave her the, well, this is our first chance to really sit down. Let's talk. And they got a, the whole story back from her again. But I think one of the things that was very not noticeable to me, but I think was noticeable to detective Harding and Amanda as well was the change in Ms. Anastasi's physical appearance at this point. Nine days later. Well, I, and I might defer to you guys to explain that a little better, but because you guys pointed out to me,
2: but
1: she definitely came into the station dolled up. She uh, put makeup on.
2: She brushed her hair. She had on uh, knee-high leather boots. Before she was, you know, wearing a a hooded sweatshirt, probably that she'd worn for three days in a row with stains on it and no makeup, and she definitely had not brushed her hair.
0: Wow, it's a pretty pretty stark contrast to the person you first met.
2: On the 14th, she was in a good mood.
3: Okay. For most of the interview.
2: And then towards wow. the
3: end when they started coming at her with some of the facts that did not necessarily paint her in the best light, I think she got a little less jovial pretty quick.
0: You now have, so we have sort of unraveled this love triangle and the murder. You have an 18-year-old who has committed it and really a mastermind adult who has manipulated people into committing this heinous act. So easy prosecution, right? Are, are there ever mm-hmm. ever such thing
3: as an easy prosecution, no. boss?
0: No, so the, give, the, give the listeners a little idea of what it's like to, what kind of things that you need to do to get this case ready for trial, to figure out who's gonna get prosecuted, how, why, and, and even some of the challenges that this, particular set of facts and circumstances presented uh, d- to to you guys as prosecutors?
1: Well, in terms of Mr. Struss, it was a much more a straightforward prosecution. If we He ended up pleading guilty, but if we were going to uh, take it to trial, it was pretty straightforward. We had a lot of forensic evidence. We had the uh, victim, Ms. Riggs, blood on a towel that was found at his house all of the text messages and uh, so it was very straightforward with Ms. Anastasi it was a lot more of picking and playing the various statements making sure that the changes in her story would be evident for the jury and, and Amanda
0: one of the things you know we've had a real focus on demonstrative evidence and, and helping a jury visualize how a crime occurred there was a point in time in particular that you had a type of demonstrative evidence. Can you explain how it was what what you had and how you're going to use that for the jury?
1: Yes, I worked with the uh, firearms investigator and firearms examiner who has a demonstrative weapon uh, like the 45 that the um, victim had placed next to him and then also a dummy bullet that was the size of the 380 that was found inside of Mr. Anastasi's head and just saying the numbers it doesn't mean a lot to anyone but when you can actually see it the 380 is a tiny little bullet and the 45 gun is a big gun if you try and put a 380 bullet into a 45 the 380 literally falls out so the firearms examiner was going to bring the demonstrative gun and the dummy bullet so that we could show the jury that the bullet would literally fall out of the gun.
0: Now, you you just talked about Gabe's case, Gabriel's case never made it into trial. What happened to Gabe's case?
3: Probably a week or so before trial, we were able to reach a plea deal with Gabe and his lawyer Uh, the terms of which would have him cooperate fully with us in the prosecution of Ann, and in exchange for that, he would have a sentence of life suspend all but 60 years instead of going to trial and facing the possibility of life without parole.
0: Okay, so 18-year-old clearly manipulated by uh, an adult. She's actually just destroyed an 18-year-old. Absolutely. Up until now, what posture is, you know, and Anastasia taking in relation to any type of prosecution?
3: Anne was a pretty vehement not guilty, uh, really, up until I think she took the plea two or three days before the trial was supposed to start. I and mean, we had days of motions litigation we had to get through. Uh, there was I'd probably a total of 10 to 12 hours worth of statements the police had gotten from Anne. I mean, there was eight or 10 the first day. I already mentioned them bringing her back in on October 14th when she was arrested on the 15th detective Harding and her partner interviewed her again and got a little bit more to the story so we had to watch all of those statements in court with the judge because the defense was challenging those the admissibility of those statements so we had to get through all of that the defense was alleging all kinds of technical violations with the gunshot residue and just basically any roadblock they could throw up at us they did so i don't i don't know if people who are fortunately not familiar
0: with the court system, really understand what it means to, about motions practice and, and pre-trial motions. Can you give us a little idea what, what's a pre-trial, what are pre-trial motions about? And, you know, how are they used? Are, are, are
3: you always defending them? What's, What's going on with them? The overall gist of them is that you have motions prior to trial to discuss legally what evidence is admissible once you get to trial and you're trying the case in front of the jury. The motions are heard just by a judge, no jury, and they're purely legal decisions that are made. So what we had to do... Is sit there and play all, for instance, the 10 to 12 hours of Ann's statements to make sure that they all were either Miranda compliant or I think the first statement and the second statement that they got from Ms. Anastasia. Miranda didn't even apply because she wasn't in custody. But the defense can allege then that they weren't voluntary. So we had to go through and watch all that. We had to bring in the first officer on the scene to testify that w- when he arrived and Anne came out of the house and tried to give him the thumbnail version of what he was there for, that that was a voluntary statement. So it just, I mean, and when you're talking about a court day that is six hours of actual time in front of the court at best, and you have hours and hours of tape, plus multiple witnesses, Detective Harding, her partner, all had to testify, that first officer had to testify. It, stretched into days of litigating those issues. And at the end of it, then we had to turn and probably had an hour-long legal argument about how the actual law about statements, for instance, applied to the particular case.
0: And how many pieces of evidence did you end up having to do this with in this particular case?
3: I the exact number I wouldn't <laughs> know. It was substantial. So you had mentioned uh, the statement, gunshot residue. There was the, the downloads they got from Ann's phone. Um, I mean, we had a whole separate litigation over the polygraph because polygraphs are not admissible in court for any reason, but what we wanted to do was to play the pre-statement that she gave or pre-questionnaire statement that she gave to the polygraph examiner because it was another firm statement that she seemed to be committed to, but had its own minor differences from the other statements that she gave. So we had to then litigate that as well. So in between these motion
0: sessions, or as part of these motion sessions, it sounds like you have a little bit of, you're looking at some type of trial strategies, you know, why you want certain pieces of evidence in. And in, in this particular case, it sounds like the, the differing statements and the differing attitudes and, and the differing appearances really had some type of impact on Anastasi's statement.
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I think th- showing the progression of her interactions with the detectives was really critical, in my mind, or would have been very critical to show the jury her guilt. I, I mean, it, the way that the story shifted, and then as the detectives would confront her with new pieces of evidence, that then the story would kind of shift to incorporate that, but still maintain the overall thrust of her overall argument that it wasn't her, but she had this little zigzag path that She had to take to get there, and I think that that's the sort of thing when a jury sees it imme- it becomes apparent as a neutral observer when you watch that that someone is clearly deflecting and lying to try to get away with something
0: now you guys in in the in the course of all of this, you're in pretrial and there is there's a time that Ann Anastasia makes a really sort of cold and brutal statement that comes to the attention of prosecutors. Um, What was the statement that she made about the victim, Jacqueline Riggs, in this case that that we got, that we figured out long after any of these statements to Detective Harding and before the case ended up getting resolved?
3: Well, we were, we were supposed to start trial at like the second week of December and we were supposed to have our final motions hearing, I think the Wednesday before. And so Wednesday or Thursday before. And so the Monday or Tuesday night of that week, uh, we were in the office, and I was listening to her recorded conversations from the Interno County Detention Center, where she had been calling some friend of hers that uh, she had made while she'd been in there, but had since been released. At one point, I heard her have some conversation with this other person and say, well, I can't talk about that now. Let me talk about that with you from that other line, which was an indication that what she was doing was not... Having all of her conversations under the PIN number that she was assigned in the facility, and she was going to borrow someone else's, thinking that that would make it so we wouldn't hear it. So then I was able to search the number that she had been talking to and see that, sure enough, 30 seconds after she got off that phone call from her PIN number, a call was placed to that same phone number from a different PIN number. So I listened to that, and sure enough, it was Anne and she was talking to the same person again, and she started making comments, the most chilling of which was, I don't know what that bitch thought was going to happen. She moved into my house with my husband and my family. And she made some other comments regarding the trial itself, saying, and I might get the quoted wrong exactly, but something to the effect of, the jury would understand after they hear about me and what he did to me, why I killed him, but then I've got a dead 23-year-old in the basement I have to explain. Wow. So it's it's
0: pretty clear that, she knew exactly what was going on and was looking for a way out.
3: Oh, absolutely.
0: So when all of this stuff comes to light, did, did she ever get
3: that trial? No, she didn't. Uh, we found it at night, and then Amanda helped me. We got it burned and emailed over to the defense attorneys that that night or the next morning.
1: I think you texted me first thing in the morning, Maybe and I I saw it. We got it sent over to defense counsel before we went back to court um, to finish out the motions. And defense counsel spoke with their client. And I think it was that day that she decided to plead guilty.
3: Very begrudgingly, but yes.
0: Yes. Tell me a little bit about the, the plea hearing and sentencing in this case.
3: Well, they were actually two separate hearings. She pled guilty... Uh, Right on the date that Amanda was referencing. um, What did she plead guilty to? uh, Two counts of first-degree murder, the one of Anthony Anastasi and the other murder of Jacqueline Riggs. And then sentencing was deferred for a couple months for both sides to get sentencing presentations together. The terms of the deal that we had offered her was that she could plead guilty and receive a sentence somewhere uh, life suspend all but a range between 40 and 60 years. And so then both sides were going to be able to make an argument along those lines and within that framework when we came to sentencing a couple months later. Um, How did the sentencing hearing go? Well, I think well. Um, But we, uh, Amanda and I spent a lot of time, we put together an argument using the facts of the case, all the Unfortunately, we had to go through all the gory details of what was done to Ms. Riggs and Mr. Anastasi, the statements that the detectives had obtained from her. We played parts of that, which I thought was important to do because the judge had already seen it. But I wanted to reiterate to him that she clearly had lied multiple times to the police and essentially to him. And then finishing that off by playing the calls that we had recorded from the jail showing at the end how she really felt about this whole situation. And the defense responded with an argument that she had been the victim of domestic violence and that because of that, the entire incident should be excused, including the murder of Ms. Riggs, who had never laid a finger on her. So, Amanda, what did she get?
1: For Mr. Anastasi, it was life suspend all but 40, but for Jacqueline Riggs, it was life suspend all but 60, which is exactly what we had been hoping for in terms of Ms. Riggs. Of course, we would have, I guess, liked uh, life suspend all but 60 on Mr. Anastasi, but it really was a powerful statement from the judge as to how much worse it was that Ms. Riggs really was an innocent in this yes you know, she was living with this man's family but she really had done nothing and um, she was murdered quite horribly
0: and Kelly how long have you been a detective now
1: uh 20 years
0: in in your 20 years here how does this kind of murder rate
2: we've never had one like this before well
0: I, you know i i do appreciate all the work that you guys did you know Kelly especially investigating having to investigate a, a really unique salacious complex kind of homicide really once in a once in a generational kind of homicide here for our county so it's it's fantastic work by everybody here and you know I just appreciate you guys taking the time to give us a little insight into this particular case so I'm Wes Adams your state's attorney here in Anne Arundel, Anne Arundel County and Please join me next time as we come back with episode five.